Well, good afternoon. Good to be back together again. So this morning we talked about overcoming sin and our attitude towards sin. Uh, this afternoon we'll have a number of different topics, uh, actually kind of three separate sections of scripture from First John. So we're kind of, in a sense, kind of wrapping things up and trying to tie things together from what we've had so far. The, the first is going to be page eight, which is our heart and confidence toward God, which really deals with the issue of a person who has a, a heart that has doubts, fears, maybe sort of a, just a, a cloud of doom over the heart, not really knowing if they're saved or not. That's uh, somewhat the issue that is dealt with there in, in uh, 1 John 3 at the end. The second thing that we will look at is part of chapter 4, which deals with the problem of fear, another big issue that keeps people from having assurance of salvation. And then thirdly, we'll look at a section of scripture from chapter 5, which is kind of the final summary and sort of appendix of the book, which that's the section that really addresses the whole issue of spiritual warfare and kind of the center box of that diagram that we have developed about the book. So go with me to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 18. That's where we will begin this afternoon. My little children, and again, you've got that phrase, my little children, and when he uses that phrase, he's going to say something very important. My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in love, dwelleth in him, and he in him, and hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. What is the goal of these verses? That's the first question I ask there. And if you look at verse... um, 19 there. It says, hereby we know of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. I think that's the overall goal of the verses. The goal of the verses is that we would assure our hearts before the Father. That really comes back to the theme of the book that we might know that we're saved. So here he's talking about assurance at a heart level, not assurance at a mind level, but assurance 
in the heart. Uh, let me just use a little illustration to help us think about maybe what he's trying to say here. Uh, if I just use this for an example, if I take this folder and put it on the floor here and stand on the folder, I'm not afraid at all. I'm not afraid of falling off. In fact, I can stand on one foot. I can even jump up and down a little bit. I'm not afraid at all. Probably any of you could come up here and stand on the folder. You wouldn't be afraid at all. Now, if I take that folder and put a pole underneath it and put it up about this high. Now, say the folder doesn't give. It's a solid piece of wood and it's up that high. Now, who wants to stand on it and jump around? Some of you that are carpenters wouldn't have any fear. You could, you know, stand on one foot and stand on your tiptoes and reach something and paint backwards. Yeah, I know that, but not me. Uh, I was helping tear off a roof one time on the school, and it wasn't a very steep pitch roof at all. First half hour, I was okay. After about an hour, I started getting scared. Uh, pretty soon, I was on the peak of the roof with one leg on either side. <laughs> After a while, they actually sent me home. <laughs> I just could not handle the heights. Um, now, what if I take this, make it a solid piece of wood, and put it up at about 30 stories high? Uh, probably very few of you would want to stand on it, uh, at least not jump around on it. Um, the, the goal is that we are able to... to be in the hand of God at any height, in any place, in any situation and feel secure. It's easy to be secure in the hands of God in easy situations, but what about in difficult situations? Can we have that assurance that God's with us? That's a little bit of the goal of, of uh, this particular passage and maybe really the kind of the goal of our afternoon session is that we can have that sort of assurance in the hand of God, that even if we're 20 stories up, that we can know that he is with us. We don't, we're not afraid to stand on one leg. We're, we have the assurance that he is holding us in his hand. All right, let's, let's uh, just try to examine the text here fairly closely and look at what he is saying in these verses. And I will admit they are fairly difficult verses. And in fact, when you get to the section here on your heart condemning you and God is greater than your heart, I mean, if you pull out a typical commentary, it'll go from one page per verse and you'll have 20 or 30 pages sometimes on this section because there are different interpretations and different ideas. So I'm going to give to you what has made the most sense to me as I have studied this. But let's begin at verse 18 where it says, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Now I think this verse is fairly straightforward. He says, don't just love by your words and your tongue. And I think we know what that means. Don't just say that you love someone and spout out words about how you love them. That really doesn't matter that much what you say. But he says instead... Love in deed and in truth. Now, uh, 
Again, I think maybe we know what the deed is. That's doing it. That's actually doing it. Don't just talk about it, but do it. So the deed part is pretty clear. That is doing the deed. Don't just talk, but walk. So that's the first thing he's saying. But then why does he add in truth to that? What does he mean by in truth? Well, maybe just a simple illustration will illustrate this. Suppose that... um, you, there's someone in the community who needs, maybe for whatever reason, maybe they're handicapped or maybe they're doing something else and, and uh, they need uh, firewood cut for them. So you're going to go over to their place and cut 10 cords of firewood for them for the winter. Now, you can go cut the 10 cords of firewood and come home thinking in your heart, they could do that for themselves. And you know, you can kind of be grouching in your heart and not really do it because you really wanted to from your heart. But you did the deed, but you didn't really do it in truth. The in truth, I think, is talking about our heart motivations. It's talking, it, it's meaning that we did the deed from a true heart of love for the person. He's talking about more than just doing deeds, but he's talking about from a, the, the depths of our heart, really doing it out of our heart. That's how I interpret what he means, why he adds that phrase in truth. And I, I think that's pretty straightforward to us. We know we shouldn't just talk with our tongues, but when we do good deeds, we shouldn't just do the external deed, but if it comes out of our heart, because we really love the person, that's what he's trying to tell us to do there. So that's verse um, That's verse 18. Verse 19 says, And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Now notice the wording there. Verse 19 says, And hereby, or by this, we know that we are of the truth. So he's backing up to verse 18. What he's saying is, if you do good deeds... If you do deeds in deed and in truth, by that you will know that you are of the truth. By that you will know that you are a child of God and will assure your heart before him. So number one there, there's two ways given in this passage to quiet our hearts or our consciences before God. And the, this, this is the first one. Now let's, let, me, let me talk about it a little bit and think about this. Um, sometimes we look at our failures. Sometimes we look at the things we've done wrong, the places where we haven't followed Christ, and we all have those in our lives. It's not too difficult for me to look back at my 50 years and point out the places where I failed. But that's not what he's talking about here in this passage. He says, take a look at your life and look at the places where you have done good deeds in truth, out of a true, pure heart of love. Now, really, he's kind of calling for self-evaluation there. And 
And I think only an individual really knows their own heart. But he's saying, look back at your life. Look back at the things you have done for others. And can you identify deeds that you really did, not just because you had to do them, but because you really love the person. You really did it because of the love of Christ working in your heart. And you did the deed, you did the deed and you did it in truth. And what he's saying is this, if you find, if you look back over your life and you find such a deed, or hopefully more than one, he says that is evidence that you are a child of God. Or at least you were a child of God at that point in your life. Uh, why is that? Because you cannot do, you cannot do something in deed and in truth without being a child of God. An unbeliever cannot do something out of a deep spirit level love for someone else because you can't have, an unbeliever does not have that love of God at that level. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but that's really helped me in my life. Instead of looking at your failures, look at the positive things that God has actually done in your life. Look at, look at things that you have done for others and you really did it because of the love of God. And if you, if you can find those, that's evidence you're a child of God. It's very clear that he says, by this you will, that's what he says in verse 19, very clearly, hereby we know that we are of the truth. When we can identify those deeds done in deed and in truth. So for, for, for number one there, the way I worded it, on the two ways given here to quiet our consciences or our hearts before God, number one is simply by looking at specific deeds of love we have done with a pure, true heart to glorify God. Now you can word it differently than that, but that's how I worded number one. By looking at specific deeds of love, we have done with a pure, true heart to glorify God. The issue that we're dealing here with again is the issue of a troubled heart or a troubled conscience. And those two are maybe a, a little bit different things, but I'm, I'm kind of putting both of those together. Someone who is wrestling with, am I really a believer? And, and I've done some wrong things and I'm struggling with things and how, how does this really turn out in my life? And here's the, the instructions that he gives to that sort of a person. Okay, let's keep on going. That's verse 19. And then we go to verse 20. For if our heart condemn us, so that phrase, so if you have doubts and confusion at your heart level. So now, one important thing to remember in interpretation here is the audience that he's writing to. He is writing to believers, to those who believe. So what he is referring to in this verse, I believe, is a believer who has doubts and confusion in the heart. He's not writing to an unbeliever who has doubts and confusion in the heart. He's talking about someone who's struggling. They really are a believer. They believe in Christ, but they're struggling at the level of the heart. He says this, if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Now, one interpretation, the way some have interpreted this, is that if you're struggling in your heart and you're having doubts and issues, 
then when God looks at you, if, if, if you see doubts and issues in your heart, he sees a whole lot more bad things than you do, and you better watch out. Uh, that is one way to interpret this. I don't think that is what John is trying to say here. Again, I believe that because his goal is not to, to condemn the Christian. His goal is for the Christian to actually find assurance of salvation. So he says this, if your heart condemn you, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. So what is it that God knows? Oh yes, he he knows all the bad things that you've done, but he also looks deep inside of you and he sees the deepest desires of your heart. He sees down to our spirit level, that drawing we had up here, I think this morning at our spirit level where the Holy Spirit dwells and the new creature in Christ is dwelling, that new man, he sees that deepest desire of your heart. When I, again, I go back to my, my teen years. I, because of my concept of God, I thought that when I did something wrong, God looked at me and condemned me and he pointed out everything else and he was, he was putting X's on my chart and, and so God, the idea of God knowing everything kind of scared me. I was scared of God. Well, I think for the believer, when you understand the principles here, the believer does not need to be afraid of an all-knowing God. In fact, the omniscience of God actually brings comfort to our hearts. Why? Because he's compassionate and loving and kind. He knows our struggles and our wrestlings. And what does he do? He looks deep in our heart, in our spirit, and sees at the deepest level of who we are, our desires and our heart is turned toward him. And that's what he sees. So the, the way I interpret verse 20 is simply this way. If at a heart level you're having doubts and confusion and turmoil, God's greater than your heart. In fact, he looks deeper than that. He, he looks down at the very core of your being and sees that gold heart, that new birth. He sees his spirit working in your life. He sees beyond the rocks and the rubble and the strongholds, and that brings honor and glory to him when he sees who you really are. Then the next verse says, Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. So the goal is to have a heart that isn't wrestling. The goal is to have a heart of confidence toward God. So, and uh, there's, there's one phrase here that I'm kind of picking out at the end of verse 19 that I think kind of summarizes what I want to say. He says, and shall assure our hearts before him. How do we find a, a deep assurance? It's before God. In other words, assurance depends on what God says and not on what I say. It, let, let, me, let me take you to another passage of Scripture here. First Corinthians chapter 4, and just read a few verses here. First Corinthians four verses three through five. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. 
Yea, I judge not mine own self, for I know nothing of myself, yet am I not hereby justified. He that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. And then shall every man have praise of God. If we take, if, if I take my own feelings in my heart or my own conscience as the final guide, and if I'm having doubts in my conscience and say that condemns me before God, what I'm really doing is setting up my own thoughts and my own conscience as the judge. My own conscience and my own, and, and my own ideas about myself is not what judges me. That's what Paul says, I do not judge myself. I am judged by God. And so that, what John is saying here is, the, the, what we need to look to is what God says about me, not what my own heart says about me. So what the, the way I word number two there is by depending on God's judgment rather than my own emotions or heart or conscience. By depending on God's judgment rather than my own emotions or heart or conscience. At the end of verse 19 there, where you have the King James words before him, that's an, an, an emphatic in the Greek. He, the way it's written in Greek, that's very emphatic. So it, he doesn't just add it kind of as a thought at the end. It's very important to the context of the verse. Before God, not before my own heart. The, and the, the next line there, I kind of already mentioned this. The um. Let me find the actual the words the way I have it here. The omniscience of God should relieve, not terrify us. Those are the words of John R.W. Stott in a commentary. So that's where I got that phrase. The omniscience of God should relieve, not terrify us. Now again, keep in mind this is an audience of Christians. For the unbeliever, it's very different. For the unbeliever, yes, God does look at his sins and condemn him because of one sin, but he's writing to believers. So the audience here is very important in how you interpret the, the last part here of, of 1 John chapter 3. So just kind of summarizing that, what... What we're saying here, I think what the text is saying is that if someone has doubts, confusion, sort of maybe almost a cloud over their life, they can't really find uh, assurance of salvation and they're wrestling with this, there's two things that John gives here for them. One is for them to look back at their life and identify deeds done where they really did it out of a love for God of a deep, true love for God, because that, that is evidence that the Holy Spirit is in them. And then the second thing is, they need to depend on the judgment of God and what God says about them, rather than their own emotions. Their own emotions and conscience are not the final say. Now, I've, the, the next thing you see in your paper there, it says, thought, what should you do with the wrestlings, doubtings, fears, etc., of your heart? This came... Um, out of some questions and discussion a number of years back in class. Now, 
try to make sense of the question. So, so, so the person who has doubts, confusions, fears, and they're wrestling with these things in their heart. Uh, I don't know if you ever tried this, either in your own life or with someone else. You tell them, I'll just forget about all that stuff. That's not true. Just believe God. Uh, it doesn't usually quite work that way. It's not that easy just to take those things and push them aside. So we're saying don't depend on those, don't depend on God, but what, what do you do with those? Uh, I'll, I'll give you kind of the words of one of my students and then try to make sense of it. And this, this, is, this is one of those things, if you can grasp it, great, but if I tell my students otherwise, just let it fly over your head. But, but uh, this, this is actually fairly profound. Uh, this is what one of my students said. Don't throw away what your heart says. It is part of the redemption process. If your heart tells you something is wrong, there probably is. But it has to do with sanctification, not justification. Now, what, what, I, what I understand that to be saying is, so if you are wrestling with doubts and confusion in your heart, there's a reason for it. It comes from somewhere. It doesn't just come out of the blue. Probably it comes out of things you've experienced, maybe out of family relationships, maybe out of ways you've been hurt by others, maybe out of uh, sin patterns you've had in your life. But there's a reason why you're wrestling with those things. And you, you can't just throw it out the door because it's there. But... What you have to realize is that doesn't mean you're not a Christian. That's what it says. It has to do with sanctification, not justification. Remember that diagram I had up here? For the believer, they still have things at the soul level. Lust, fear, pride, anger. And they may have, they may have satanic strongholds in their heart. That Satan's got... And probably these things come as a result of that. Doesn't mean you're not a Christian. What it does mean is you've still got some things to work on. You've got some healing to find in your life. Maybe you've got some repentance to do. But that's a very different situation than not being saved. So that, that's, really, that's really helped me. Um, so remember, it has to do with, not with justification, but with sanctification. Now we're going to come back to that idea a little bit at the end of the book. And, but there's, there's, there's a little bit of that thread kind of through the book. It's not a prominent thread, but John, John is talking about some of those things, that sin, back, back to eight, where he said, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself. Through the book, he keeps coming back to that. What are you going to do with that sin that's in your heart, that anger, that fear, that lust? What are you going to do with it? And that... That uh, We will talk about that again a little bit later. What are the blessings of an assured heart? Uh, the last question there, if you look at verses 21 to 24, there's just a lot of them here. You can jot down what you want. Verse 21 is confidence toward God. Verse 2 is answered prayer. Verse 3 is doing his commandments, loving one another, um, and assurance of salvation down in the last verse. So there's a lot of blessings of an assured heart. So if you're wrestling with assurance, you have doubts and confusion in your heart, it's worth the battle to work on those things because if you, you need that to be 
confident and, and uh, courageous in spiritual warfare. All right, we'll go on to page 9. And there we go over to 1 John chapter 4 and verses 16 to 21. Although kind of the whole chapter is the backdrop for this, but I want to read verses 16 to 21. That's kind of the core of the passage here that we want to look at. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he that loveth God love his brother also. So the goal again of of this chapter is somewhat the same as we said there in chapter 3. The goal is to have assurance before God, and the issue here is fear. If you have fear in your life, it's going to definitely hinder you from having assurance and having a deep joy in, in Christ. A couple of questions here to get us thinking. At the, the first, does God love you or does God hate you? Well, I suppose if I all ask you all that individually, you all know the right answer. You know that God loves you. But suppose your children die, die in a crash, a fiery crash by a drunken driver, and then your spouse dies, and then your house burns down, and then you get cancer. Does God still love you? Now, I know you still know the right answer. Yes, God loves me, but have, have you ever had, and, and again, all we can do is look honestly at our hearts. Um, there's a difference between a head knowledge and a heart knowledge. What, how much would it take till you get kind of mad at God and doubt God? That's, that's somewhat the question there. Um, I've... I, I, re, I remember one, one time in class, I was really pushing my class on this issue. Does God love you or does God hate you? And, of course, they all said God loves me. And so I asked, well, how do you know God loves you? Well, the typical answer I get is because the Bible tells me so. And, yeah, that's, that's good. But then I'd say, well, what, you know, I, I'd, I'd say, well, maybe, maybe you've got it all turned around. And I just kept pushing them. And uh, you, you're just saying that because you're brought up in a Mennonite home. And, you know, that's what you're supposed to say. And and kept pushing them. And I remember one particular case, there was a young lady in the back of the class. I just, and, and, and finally she started crying. What did I do? <laughs> okay. And, uh, and then out, but out of her tears came actually what I was after. She said, I know God loves me because, and she started telling a story from her life where there was something difficult in her life and she knew that God was with her in that story. 
And what I want you to see from this passage is essentially that's the difference between a head knowledge and a heart knowledge. A head knowledge is only knowing the facts because you've been taught it. A heart knowledge is when you can tell stories about the love of God and you can testify to his love in your own life. If you can look back at your life, at the difficult times in your life, and you can tell stories and see God's love through that, then you know the love of God has gotten down into your heart. So I've kind of already talked about the second question there. But let's, let's now look at the text. And I'm going to begin at verse 18, a very familiar verse to us probably, but maybe kind of the key verse, at least in what I want to pull out of this chapter. There is no fear in love. The Greek word fear is phobos, P-H-O-B-O-S, which you should recognize. We get our word phobia from that. So there is no phobia in love. The word means, the, the, the idea of the word is there's no running away. It's kind of the literal meaning of this thing, but it's a strong word. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out phobia because phobia has torment. And the word torment means punishment or penalty or agony. Punishment or penalty or agony. And this is a, the, uh, this is a present tense verb in there. So the verb is, uh, let me look at this again. Because fear hath, no, the verb hath there is present tense. What it's saying is fear continually, ongoingly has torment. And what, what I understand that to say is that if you've got fear in your life, if you're living a life full of fear, there is going to be punishment and penalty and agony in your life because of it. And I think we, sh- we understand that. When you're someone who's fearful, fear itself carries with it its own punishment or agony because you're not able to really do what you want to do. Uh, When I was up on that roof, I couldn't do anything. I had to go home. That's what fear does in your life. It has its own punishment or penalty or agony. That's what I think he is saying, that he that feareth is not made perfect in love. I hope you're seeing that the key here is to be made perfect in love. That's the key in this passage. Because perfect love is what casts out the fear. So, there's, so we're kind of starting at verse 18, then we're going to kind of work out from verse 18. So from verse 18, what we see is that it is perfect love that is what casts out fear, which is obviously what we want for our lives. So first of all, there's two key points to observe in the context. Verse 10 says this, Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And down in verse 19, he says again, We love him because he first loved us. Again, I remember one time I was meditating on this passage of scripture, and I, uh, I, was, I was kind of praying to God and telling God, you know, I love you, and, and uh, thanking him, and, and it just kind of seemed like things were quiet for a little bit. And then God said, uh, did, did you read the passage? And he said, I love you. It's not that you love me. He, he said, I love you. Now, I know we need to respond in love, but 
but he says the first thing is, you've got to get my love in your heart. So what, what I see from verses 10 and 19 is, is simply this, that the, the beginning point is the love of God. That is where it starts, the love of God to us. The beginning point is not my love to God, but that he first loved us. If you don't get that part right, if you don't get that into your heart, you're not really going to be able to love those around you. And then the second thing that I see in verse, is verses 16 and 17, the two verses that lead up to verse 18. Now let me read those again. Verse 16 says, We have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. And herein, or by this, is our love made perfect. Ah, he's just told us how to get a perfect love. And if you look carefully at verse 16, there's three steps. There's three verbs that are given there that tell you how to get a perfect love. The first one is, he says, we have known, that's step one. Second is, we have believed, that's step two. And then the third one is, we must dwell in love. So you've got three verbs there that we'll look at. The first is we must know the love of God. The second is we must believe the love of God. And the third is we must dwell in the love of God. So verse 17 says, Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in the world. If we don't have a perfect love, we're going to have fear in our lives, and we're not going to be able to have boldness, either in, in, in this life or when we get to the judgment. So I go on down to the three-point outline on how to be made perfect in love, which I just gave to you. Number one is we must know the love of God. Number two, we must believe the love of God. And number three, we must dwell in the love of God. And now I want to look at those three a little bit and what it means. So being made perfect in love it doesn't mean just loving God more. It doesn't mean that I need to go out and put more effort into loving God and praising God. That's not what it means. It, in fact, it primarily comes by understanding and knowing the love of God to me. That's the starting point, which we'll see here. So number one is we must know the love of God. This would be the intellectual part of it. Knowing is, is uh, primarily, it, it, it's more than a head word, but for what we're doing here, it means knowing the facts. It means knowing that God loves me and knowing that the Bible tells me so. It means knowing that Christ died on the cross because of his love for me. And uh, so I, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on, on that, just but I think it's just simply, it's, it, it's knowing the story of the crucifixion and the resurrection. It's knowing uh, that Christ lived a perfect life. So it starts there, but number two is critical. We must believe the love of God. Now you say, well, yeah, I, you know, our first, my first response is, well, yeah, I believe that he loves me. But believe here takes it down into the heart. As long as things are going well for us, yeah, we think God loves us. But when things get a little difficult, then it's very easy for us to have doubts in our heart. We might not express them because it's not the Mennonite thing to do. But 
really do I know in my heart, in, when something difficult happens, maybe there's an accident in my family or cancer in my family or abuse in my family or difficult things happen to me, do I know in my heart, do I still believe and feel that God loves me? I want to look a little bit here, going back up to verses 12 to 14 here. Let me read those verses. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us, because he hath given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. In verse 14, I was reading uh, in the J.B. Phillips translation, and, he, and I, I'm, I'm kind of even paraphrasing what he said, but the way he worded it, and I kind of ask it as a question, are you eyewitnesses to the fact, and are you able and willing to testify that God loves you? That's kind of a paraphrase of verse, first part of verse 14 put into a question. The King James says, we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son. What I'm asking is, can you tell stories about the love of God? Can you testify and tell stories about God's love? Are you an eyewitness to the fact that God loves you, and can you testify to it? Or do you just know the facts, the head knowledge facts, or can you prove it from your life? And if you can tell stories about it, that is how you know that you've got it into your heart. So step two, the believing, is when the love of God gets into your heart. And the way you know that, the way you know that it's in your heart is when you can tell stories. When you can look at the most difficult things that have happened in your life, and you can tell the story with a smile on your face, seeing the love of God through it, and how God used it for good in your life, then you know that the love of God has gotten into your heart. But if that spot is still sore and swollen and you can't touch it or talk about it, you haven't yet perceived how God loved you through that thing. And I know that's a difficult thing, understanding how God loves us through difficulties. One of the most difficult things. And I don't have the time to go into how to transform that. I'm just, I'm just giving you that... The, the, the factual knowledge, if you can't tell stories about it, you've still got a journey to go on to find the love of God in that situation. Now, we will talk about it a little bit later. I, a, a question that obviously comes up, in, at least in my mind, is in, so if the love of God is only in my head, how do I get it to my heart? And I'm going to talk about that again a little bit later here in the, in, in the last section. Then point number three, we must dwell in the love of God. Now, what does it mean to dwell in the love of God? When you look back at a number of verses here, that becomes fairly clear. Let me just read several verses here. Verse 7, let us love one another, for love is of God. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Verse 12, If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. You see, the love of God is not perfected until we are loving one another. 
And then 20 and 21, if a man say, I love God and hate his brother, he is a liar. So verse 21 says, this commandment have we from him that he that love God love his brother also. The way I define the, the last point there, dwelling in love, is it's, it, that is the pouring out of love both to God and to our brother. I define dwelling in love as returning the love to God and also loving my brother. That's the final step. But what I'd like to say is you can't do that until you have known and believed the love of God. The love of God has, gotten into your, has got to get into your heart before you are able to love others and to really love God at a deep level. Perfect love, this is the, the black print there, is not flawless love. Perfect love doesn't mean that you're loving perfectly or flawlessly. That's not what John means. He's talking more about perfected love. Perfect love is not flawless love, but it is love that has attained the goal of loving others. Perfect love is not flawless love, but love that has attained its goal of loving others. So you've perfect love is love that has gone through those three steps, to know the love of God, to believe the love of God, and then thirdly, to dwell in that love is to let it flow back to God and to others. So let me do uh, a little diagram maybe to help us picture this just a little bit. God in the triangle, and the person on the left is myself or you. Uh, so the love of God comes down uh, into our hearts. It goes from our head down here to our hearts. So that arrow we can label number one is to know, and number two is to believe. So the first two steps are actually having to do with the love of God getting into our heart. The third step then is that love being given. The third step is the dotted arrows to dwell in the love of God. I know my writing's a little sloppy there, but one is to know, two is to believe, three is to dwell. Now, if this thing is working well, and that, that, that pathway of God's love, getting his love into your heart, is doing what it's supposed to be doing, and you're secure in him, then how is it going to look when you love your brother? If you're secure in God, then I can love my brother, and even if he doesn't receive the love, even if he has a hardened heart, and maybe he yells and screams back at me and calls me names, is it going to affect how I feel about who I am in Christ? No, because I have a secure basis. 
But think about how this works if I only have a hid knowledge of the love of God. I don't really believe the love of God. I'm not secure in his love, and I'm insecure, and then I try to love my brother. What am I going to have? I'm going to have fear in my life. I'm going to be afraid. So when I love him, if he rejects me, I'm going to pout or I'm going to retreat, and it's going to make a, I'm going to make a mess of myself. Uh, and I, I think that's simply what the text is saying when it says a perfect, perfect love casts out fear. It's, it's very straightforward. If you've got a love that, is, that you know and believe the love of God, you've got it in your heart, you're secure in God's love, then you can love other people without fear of rejection. The fear is going to be gone. It's going to cast it out. So it isn't some magical formula how to get rid of fear. It's simply straightforward. Let the love of God get deep into your heart and suddenly you'll find fear gone. You'll be able to love others with the deep motivations of the heart without fear of rejection and and it'll, it'll flow out of who you are in Christ. All right, let's go on to page 10. So, the, the, the major subject of the book is how to find assurance in Christ. And, and I would say we've looked at probably three major issues. One is the issue of, of sin and forgiveness. Someone, someone who has problems wrestling with, with sin in their lives, they're overcoming sin. Uh, the, the, the second thing that we talked about here this afternoon is the problem of a troubled conscience or a troubled heart. Then the third thing we talked about is the problem of fear. Now we're going to go to chapter 5. And we're going to go to verses 13 to 21. And let me read this section first. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Now, we started with that verse at the beginning of the book. And in a lot of senses, that's somewhat the ending of the book. That's sort of his concluding statement. Verses 14 to 21 could really be seen as sort of an appendix. John just can't quite stop there. He's got to add something to it. And what he says is very important. So verse 14, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin and there is a sin not unto death. We know that whatsoever is born of God sinneth not. But he that is begotten of God keepeth himself and that wicked one toucheth him not. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. And we know that the Son of God is come, and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Now, what a way to 
end a book. Probably of any books in the New Testament, this is one of the most blunt, maybe unexpected endings. And yet if you understand his whole progress in the book, it does make sense. But little children, and again, notice that phrase, little like one more thing I want to tell you, and this is important. Keep yourselves from idols. Okay, go back, going back there to our notes. Why are the verses unbelieving prayer where they are in the book? I don't know about your experience in prayer, but you know, when you pray, do you get what you ask for? Um, hopefully we can all point to answers in prayer, but this, this sounds like the kind of life I'd really like to have. This is the confidence that we have in him that we ask anything according to his will, he heareth. He hear us. And if we know that he hear us, whatever we ask, we know we have what we ask for. Wow, that's someone who's, who's doing well in their spiritual life. Why is it here at the end of the book? Uh, I, I think because that's not going to happen unless you've got the assurance of salvation. This is simplifying the progression of the book. But up chapter 1, 1 through 5, 13 deals with assurance of salvation. And then he brings in believing prayer. Now, believing prayer isn't so that you can pray for a bigger house or a bigger boat or more money or whatever else. That's not the context of what he's talking about. If you look at what he's talking about, he, he says... If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask. The context is, I simply put it, as spiritual warfare. Believing prayer and answers to prayer is not, in, is not in the context of our own personal needs and wants. It's in the context of warfare for the kingdom of God, for our brothers and sisters that are struggling. What he's saying is, if you've got assurance of salvation in your life, if you've gotten that in your life, now you've got the basis for believing prayer to cry out to God for the brother or sister that is struggling with sin. Uh, so that, that's why I think it's at the back of the book. Ephesians chapter 6, the chapter on spiritual warfare, is also at the back of the book. So I think the same reason. You, you look through the book of Ephesians, he starts with our position in Christ, then our walk in Christ, and ends with spiritual warfare. Today, if you go into a Christian bookstore, a typical Christian bookstore, you'll find a lot of books on prayer and spiritual warfare. That sort of thing is kind of in the forefront of what you see. But a lot of people want to try to jump into that and miss out on, on the foundation. You've got to have the foundation of assurance in Christ and walking and living the Christian life if you're going to get into spiritual warfare. I see two keys here in the last section to an ongoing life 
of spiritual warfare. And I see them as two, two things that need to be going on at the same time, but kind of parallel. You won't be able to do one really without the other. The first one, 514 to 16, is probably what we usually think of when we think of spiritual warfare. It's just what I was talking about. Uh, you, can, you can label that one prayer. You can put in uh, prayer, fasting, spiritual disciplines. All those are things that have to do with spiritual warfare. I asked the question there, why did the Allies win World War II? Now, what, you wonder, what does that have to do with, with okay, I'm, gonna, I'm having you think of an illustration. You go back to World War II, which is long before, I think, most of our, any of our times here, at least before mine. Uh, from what I understand of studying history, the infrastructure of Germany was pretty much broken down with bombing. They couldn't produce... They were at least very hindered in producing more airplanes and tanks. Eventually, England and the United States was able to destroy, to destroy their aircraft, and so eventually the Allies could fly over Germany pretty much unhindered. Meanwhile, in the United States, our factories were pouring out weapons and tanks and, and airplanes. They get shot down, we just produce more. Essentially, the reason the Allies won World War II is because they had more resources. They, had, they could continue to build more resources. They had more supplies and resources. That's essentially why they eventually won the war. Now, let me ask you, in spiritual warfare, who has the most resources? who has a bank of resources that is limitless in supply, is, will never end, and it's our God in heaven. We've got all the resources that we need in spiritual warfare. God is ready to provide everything. And how do you access it? Well, I think one key Maybe the biggest key is prayer. Obviously, our lives and living our lives, but in, in, the, in the setting here he's writing about in John, I think that's what prayer is. Prayer is accessing those resources of God. Prayer itself is, a, is depending upon God and not our own resources. We're calling upon God who has the resources. What the allies would do if the armies got into a difficult situation and they knew where the enemy was, they could just radio for help, and they'd send the bombers in and, and bomb, bomb those coordinates. Well, we have the same means in our life where there's spiritual resistance, we need to pray. And so prayer is one of the... That's what I kind of have for number one there. John Piper, in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, said this. Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie. Now, maybe we need to upgrade that. The younger generation doesn't know what a walkie-talkie is, but uh, it's one of those things you talk into and someone can hear it at the other end. Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie 
so we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of God advances in the world. It is not surprising that it malfunctions when we try to make it into a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. It wasn't designed for more comforts in the den. It was designed for warfare. And if we change the purpose of it, it is going to malfunction. It won't work. So what, what, we, what we are dealing with at this point, again, is we're really talking about that middle box of the three boxes I had. We had little children. Now, we, now we're really talking about the box of young men. As we find ourselves in the box of young men in spiritual warfare, how do we effectively enter into spiritual warfare? And that's a big topic, and John's just really giving us a few keys here at the end of the book. I don't think he's trying to completely address the situation. You go to to Ephesians chapter 6, and Paul gets into it a lot more deeply, and James James deals with it in James chapter 4. But the two things he does say, one is he focuses on prayer. The second thing that he, that he says, and I'm picking out, I, I, would, I would say this section is, is verses 19 to, maybe 18 to 21, but I'm particularly going to focus on that last verse where he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And what does that have to do with spiritual warfare? Okay, the word keep yourselves. Now, again, I ask what tense. Uh, so I'm reviewing what we, I gave you a couple nights ago. There's basically here probably two tenses he could use. One is the present tense. If he used the present tense, he would say, little children, keep on keeping yourselves from idols. If he used the aorist tense, he would say, at this point in time, keep yourselves from idols. Now, when I looked at this, and I suppose if I ask you what you think it is, at least typically the answer I get is the present tense. That's what I expected to find. And that would make sense, but that's not what he wrote. He used the aorist tense here. Point in time action. Little children, at this point in time, keep yourselves from idols. Now, what does, what does that mean? Uh, and again, this, this is what made, has made the most sense to me. Um, let, let's, let me give you the example of a drunk. A drunkard who wants to quit drinking. He, he, uh, he decides he's going to quit drinking. And the next morning he wakes up and says, what am I going to do today? Next morning he says, yes, I'm going to keep on. I'm going to, I'm, today I'm not going to drink. The next morning he gets up again. Oh, and he's kind of depressed. Oh, I'm not going to drink today. Again, the next day he makes the same decision. And, you know, the third day, the same thing. Every morning when he makes up, he keeps on making a decision to not drink. Now, yeah, there's some validity in that. But I don't think that's, that's not the sort of uh, commitment that John is trying to get us to make. I think what he wants us to say is this. Right where I am in my life now, he says, I want you to, at this point in time, make a decision that you are going to fight this battle for the rest of your life. That, what that drunkard needs to do 
is I am going to quit drinking. I've made a decision that I am going to quit drinking, and I'm going to hold to that decision for the rest of my life. Now, that doesn't mean he's not going to struggle with it after that, but he doesn't have to wake up every morning and say, now what am I going to do today? Instead, he knows he's made the decisions, he's planted his foot down firmly, and he knows that he doesn't want to drink. I think that's the sort of decision that John is asking us to make here. Little children, make a firm, solid decision right now that you are going to keep yourself from idols. Now, what is an idol? I think we know what an idol is. It's, you know, yeah, there's idols of wood and stone, but an idol is anything that we put between ourselves and God. And that can be a lot of things. It can be pleasure, it can be sports, it can be music, it can be places we go, it can be a vehicle, it can be family, it can be a spouse, it can be our standing, it can be our reputation. Uh, there's, there's lots of things that can become idols in our lives. Oh yes, I've got the, the Tylenol story there. Let me see if I can find that here. Yeah, just a, a little simple story I found here to maybe illustrate the point. 14-year-old Jimmy gets a toothache. Uh, 14-year-old Jimmy, by the way, he likes to eat candy and drink Mountain Dew. And, uh, you know, he does a lot of it. That's what he exists on, uh, candy and Mountain Dew. And it kind of gets into his teeth. And, oh, he's got a toothache. And if you had a toothache, it goes pretty deep down in there and hurts a little bit. What is Jimmy going to do? He could go to his mother and tell his mother about the toothache. Ooh. The problem is his mother is going to take Jimmy to the dentist. And when he gets to the dentist, the dentist is probably going to look at all of his teeth. You know, Jimmy knows the feeling of the drill. Ooh, ooh, you know, I can just hear it already. And he doesn't really like that pain. Maybe one tooth he could handle, but he has the feeling there's other teeth in his mouth. The dentist isn't going to be satisfied just to fix the one tooth. He's going to take an x-ray and check every tooth. And probably there's a half a dozen or a dozen teeth. He's going to have to go back three or four more times for that drill. So what's Jimmy going to do? Well, he knows another option. There's Tylenol in the bathroom cabinet. If he takes about two or three Tylenol, pops them in his mouth, that'll get rid of the pain. Ah, and that's a whole lot simpler. Then he doesn't have to deal with the dentist's drill. So he goes into the bathroom, takes two or three Tylenol, and, you know, maybe eventually his tooth rots and comes out. But, hey, he, he took care of it that way. Uh, of course, he's got a half a dozen more and another dozen that are coming. Uh, not a very smart child. Well, um... 
let's do a diagram here. Okay, this is a believer. He's got the new birth. He's got the Holy Spirit in him. He's got the new man. Yet at the level of the soul, he's still got pride, fear, lust, selfishness, envy, at least some of these. He's still got issues that he needs to deal with. Now, if you've got those issues, and if you're not living in the fullness of the Spirit, uh, you know, you're probably going to get some wrong acts and deeds out here. Now, I know I shouldn't put those on there because we said that God forgives, but I'm just demonstrating here. So uh, he's, he's got these, and, and, and that's a problem. You don't want to be lying. You don't want to be stealing. You don't want to be swearing, whatever his wrong acts and deeds are. But that's the external problem. Now, what's he going to do about it? He can... He can do like a lot of Christians do, confess the sin, say, I'm sorry for doing that, and he can deal with the external consequences. But it's probably going to keep on happening because he hasn't been dealing with the internal consequence. He hasn't been dealing with the root causes. He hasn't he hasn't admitted that he's proud. He hasn't dealt with the fears. And so it's just going to keep on happening. Well, what does this person need to, needs, need to do? Instead of popping Tylenol and dealing with the external consequences, he's, let, he's got to let the master dentist, God, get out his drill and start drilling deep. He's got to let God start drilling down to the root issues of pride and fear and envy and selfishness. And that is kind of painful sometimes. It can be really painful. And it can be sometimes a hard and long process. I, I think that's a little bit what John is trying to say at the end of the book. He says, little children make a decision. Now, he uses the word idols. We, I, think we, I think we could put idolatry in this area. Idolatry is really a pretty broad word that would include a lot of the things I talked about. Envy, fear, selfishness really are sort of categories of idolatry, putting myself or other things before God. And so I'm kind of maybe broadening his last statement there. But what I'm suggesting is, here's what I'm suggesting. If you're going to be involved in spiritual warfare, if you want to be involved in the front lines of God's kingdom, one of the things you need to do is pray and fast and, and put on the armor of God. That's one thread. The other thread is you've got to be ongoingly dealing with those issues in your heart. 
if, if someone tries to get in spiritual warfare and they have the attitude, I have my life all put together, I'm a mature Christian, I don't need any more healing, I've got... are they going to be good at spiritual warfare? No. Think about the people you know who you run to for help, who are involved in the front lines of God's kingdom. I guarantee you that in every case it's going to be people who have been honest about these issues in their lives, and they've come through struggles and growth in their own life. They haven't just dealt with the surface problems. They have let God get out his dentist drill and dig deeply into their lives. And I think that's the final call of John. He says, now, again, these issues don't mean you're not a Christian. And going back there to the end of of chapter 3, but... Sometimes the doubts and confusion and so on of our hearts are coming out of these issues. And John's call is for us to get out the dentist drill and let God dig deeply at those issues. And I know that's a whole subject on its own. And, you know, it, it could take a whole week of meetings and whole seven. How do you do that? And obviously we don't have time to address it here. I'm just saying it's, it's a journey. It's not one simple thing. But... What I'm asking you to do is open your heart to let God work at those deep levels. Don't go around thinking, I'm mature, uh, I'm, I'm 50 now, and I've got it all put together. I'm, you know, no. Uh, we need to, until the day we die, continue opening up our lives and continue growing. That's what's going to make us effective in the work of God's kingdom. So the main thrust of the book is that we might have assurance of salvation. But assurance of salvation is not an end in itself. The goal of the book is not just that you know you're going to heaven and you have fullness of joy. The goal of the book is then that you can begin to share that love, to share that in outreach to other people. That's that's really the, the final point that John is trying to take us to. All right, I will turn it back to...